Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1228. How many lies before you belong to the lie? Part 1. This is being recorded on February 25th of the year 2022. Before getting into an explanation of the title and an introduction to the program, three links as always, uh, more important than ever. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which, uh, most of which, who, ha, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Parafractal. Uh, they are more important than ever. Uh, I simply, there is too much going on for me to cover in a single hour program. And even uh, the subject of the war in Ukraine, which we're going to be talking about in this and the next program, maybe the next two, uh, there is far more going on, and uh, Terrafractal has characteristically added a new dimension of uh, thought, pondering, uh, consideration, etc. And uh, it, it uh, is worth getting a hold of those comments. Also very uh, important comments made by other listeners as well. Uh, the second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts. Uh, sister station WFMU is podcasting the For the Record programs. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program and as our technology advances, and I'm now in mind, it's hard to believe, 43rd year on the air, uh, podcasts are rapidly becoming uh, the thing, so to speak. The third link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive containing uh, virtually all of my 43 years on the air, uh, both printed and recorded material, plus uh, all of the comments made by Parafractal and the others, uh, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. Uh, I couldn't be more pessimistic. I've, uh, I said that our civil, I've said many times I think our civilization is doomed. Uh, I'm gonna have to, uh, pivot at some point in the near future and talk about what I think is, uh, the coming, uh, <laughs> nullification of our civilization. I've also opined that there is going to be a third world war. I thought it would begin in Asia. It may, I think, uh, it is uh, certainly what is going on vis-a-vis Ukraine is most disturbing, although most inevitable, and our, at this point, thoroughly mousified media and government and population are getting just about everything about it wrong. That's one of the things we're going to be talking about in the program. Now, but I do not think that we are going to make it as a society or as a civilization, and so I think that... Uh, Getting the flash drive will enable you to become a repository for the information that chronicles the disintegration of, of our civilization and its uh, descent uh, into total fascism, which uh, is what is taking place. Uh, I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive, and I can't encourage people strongly enough to obtain it. Now... 
the title of this program will be a series, maybe two, probably three shows in length. We'll see. Uh, refers to a quote from the brilliant late comedian Mort Saul. Mort Saul in his 1976 autobiography Heartland uh, observed at one point, how many lies before you belong to the lie? In other words, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you belong to the lie? Mort Saul, by the way, was one of Jim Garrison's investigators in New Orleans, investigating the assassination of JFK, and so certainly he had a great deal of experience with uh, how many lies before you belong to the lie. Another quote that comes to mind in addition to uh, the quote from the late brilliant Mort Saul, uh, George Orwell in 1946 observed that, quote, political language is made to sound lie, to make lies sound truthful, murder respectable, and to give the appearance of solidity to pure air. And boy, are we seeing that, uh, right now. Uh, I opined in, for the record, 1226 and 1227, that I did not think that Putin would invade, uh, Ukraine unless he, uh, unless there was a move by the Zelensky government to uh, reclaim the breakaway provinces of Lukansk and Donetsk by force. Uh, there may very well have been a looming attempt like that. I think one of the things that convinced Putin to do what he did, in addition to the Ukrainian military buildup on the borders of the breakaway states, which we don't hear about here, but which is quite well documented, and uh, also the uh, sale of an advanced type of drone to the Ukrainian government by Erdogan, uh, the frankly fascist leader of Turkey, uh, an individual who I think will have a fair amount of support if he can establish a neo-Ottoman empire with parts of what are today Russia, such as the oil-rich Caucasus, and parts of what are today China, such as Xinjiang province, also rich in petroleum and other minerals. When, in early February, Erdogan, so E-R-D-O-G-A-N, most people in this country pronounce it, Erdogan, uh, which I used to do with the correct pronunciation is actually Erdogan or something like that, something similar. Uh, when he had visited Ukraine and he saluted the Ukrainian military with their salute, glory to Ukraine and glory to the heroes, uh, that was the salute of the UPA and the OUNB during World War II. More about that later. It is also now the official salute of the Ukrainian military and of the Ukrainian police. Uh, when he decided to sell more drones to Ukraine, thus significantly upgrading their military, and with the massing of Ukrainian military at borders of those breakaway states, uh, I think that uh, Putin basically felt that a, an attempt was either imminent or would be in the relatively near future and decided to move. The main uh, impetus was, I think, an attempt at preventing not only Ukraine joining NATO, which uh, 
this country refused to rule out, but a basically not so fraud Ukraine uh, with the possibility of nuclear weapons being right on Russia's border. Uh, this country, I think this uh, adventure, it's difficult to see how it's going to work out well for Russia. Uh, Putin has stated that he does not want to have a long-term occupation of Ukraine. I don't see how he's going to avoid that. I think that what is going on is very much analogous to uh, the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. We were told that, you know, they unprovoked aggression. It turns out that Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter, and someone with very deep links to the uh, Galen ABN milieu, about which we'll say more later, had been basically uh, fomenting an Islamist guerrilla campaign in Afghanistan. There have even been some probes across the border into some parts of the Soviet Union. We, however, were not told that, and but we only found that out later. And now, even even now, most people won't talk about it. I think that uh, this war is roughly analogous to that. I think it is not only very much desired by Biden and by the West, uh, I think Biden is largely a sock puppet at this point. I, I have never had, I was not a big fan of Bill Clinton. I wasn't a big fan of Barack Obama, but I am utterly contentious that Joe Biden completed. And I think in many ways he cements the Nazification of the Democratic Party. The Republican Party quite literally has had a branch that is a mere extension of not only the CIA and all the Office of Security Coordination, or Office of Policy Coordination, I should say, but is basically an adjunct of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. Uh, those connections have been evident in the Democratic Party. It has gotten steadily worse, and I think under Biden, uh, who is essentially, I think, the Ronald Reagan of the Democratic Party. I think he's basically uh, a sock puppet. I have had people criticize my observations concerning Biden's speech. Apparently he had a bad stutter, which he overcame. I have not heard him stutter. What I have noted, however, and he has had one, maybe more than one stroke, is that he has a very difficult time pronouncing polysyllables and tends to slur them. What that reminds me of is something that came to light after Ronald Reagan left office. When he was shot by the American Nazi John Hinckley, uh, an individual whose father was a uh, primary campaign backer of George H.W. Bush, the then vice president, who for whom CIA headquarters was named. He was a former director of CIA. Uh, Hinckley's father also was very active in World Vision, a Christian missionary organization, which has been, has served as a CIA front in both Latin America and Southeast Asia. Hinckley's older brother was going to have a dinner. Uh, Scott Hinckley was going to have a dinner with Neil Bush to discuss a business deal the day after the shooting. But, of course, 
No one saw anything about that. You know, here you've got the uh, vice president and former CIA director with direct links to the Nazi who shoots the president, but nobody knows nothing. It was because he was uh, uh, reading the catcher in the rye too much. But uh, that is uh, typical of uh, America. There are two kinds of Nazis in America that bedevil us. There are the N-A-Z-I-S Nazis, but they are empowered by an even worse form of Nazi, in my opinion, and that is the N-O-T-S-E-E-S Nazis. They do not see, and they will not see. Anyway, after uh, Nazi Hinckley plugged Reagan, uh, it came out later that the doctors who were examining Ronald Reagan found the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, the uh, ailment which ultimately claimed his life. So throughout most of his presidency, Reagan was basically uh, suffering from Alzheimer's disease. He was essentially a front, however, for the underground Reich and for the National Security establishment, and I think that under Joe Biden, uh, essentially the same thing has happened. Now, when the Democrats and the Republicans go at each other, it's like Vichy France versus Nazi Germany, with Vichy France being the Democrats. And the whole process is depressing in one sense and nauseating in another. But I think that uh, this Not only was this war very much wanted by Biden and a lot of other elements, uh, their disclaimers to the contrary notwithstanding, I think national security policy is being effectively controlled by Antony Blinken. Uh, He is of Hungarian Jewish extraction, rather like George Soros. Uh, He keeps the Hungarian uh, spelling of his first name. That's not A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, but A-N-T-O-N-Y. And I strongly suspect he is uh, what I have referred to as a Mormon Jew, as is uh, George Soros, who got his start in business uh, as a teenager Aryanizing Jewish property confiscated under the Holocaust, something he has described in his autobiography as the happiest period in his life. Uh, often Soros is made out to be you know, the uh, point element of the Jewish conspiracy that is uh, controlling the world. Uh, actually, he is more a Borman Jew. Do go to the SpitfireList.com website and uh, Open quotes, Borman Jew, Borman with two ends, close quotes, and you'll see more about it because we got a lot to talk about. I think, however, that this uh, war is very much like the war in Afghanistan. It uh, caught me by surprise. However, I think that uh, the one scenario that I saw as resulting in an invasion, which is an attempt at militarily reclaiming the breakaway provinces, was certainly being fainted, if not actually contemplated, with the military buildup and the increased uh, fighting along the breakaway line, but in particular with Adelon's sale of the advanced Turkish drones and his uh, using the glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes, uh, Salute. I think that uh, helped to do it. Uh, it is difficult for me to see how this will not work out badly for Putin and Russia, although I think their war aims are basically just as wacky as that will appear to be to the average listener. Not only has NATO 
broken the promise that was made to uh, Gorbachev, and they have systematically walked NATO right up to Russia's borders, beginning with Bill Clinton, who's, uh, by the way, who's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mr. Salakashvili, was the son of a Georgian Waffen SS officer. And that then continued under Bush and accelerated under Obama. What we're going to talk about in this program, one of the in Putin's speech, which has been largely censored in the U.S., uh, it's hard to find copies of that. But he talks about the basic war aims as demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, and that is being poo-pooed uh, by our media. And again, I think we have gotten to that stage that Mort Saul uh, talked about in Heartland. How many lies before you belong to the lie? And I think at this point, this country and its people belong to the lie. And many of them really are no more than that lie walking around on two legs. What I'm going to be doing in this series is reviewing information that all of this is, like everything else I do on this program, uh, from open sources. And this will be by way of review for veteran listeners and also those who use the website. When Putin talks about being occasion, he knows what he is talking about, and we are going to be talking about the reinstallation of the successor organizations to the OUNB and UPA collaborationist elements that uh, basically help to implement the Third Reich's agenda in Ukraine and parts of Poland. It is, I think, a dramatic manifestation of what Mark Saul was talking about uh, to see even the so-called progressive sector. And uh, I, as always, note the use of the term so-called. I am more critical of them precisely because they profess to be, oh no, we, we're not like the others, we, we are, we are holier, we are pure, we are the bearers of truth. And in fact, not so much. Uh, there have been a few progressive, unquote, commentators that I've heard that have made references to Pravi Sector or the Azov Battalion, describing them as, quote, neo-Nazi groups, unquote. In fact, they are elements that are fundamental to the control of the Ukrainian military and intelligence service and police establishment by those elements. And uh, we will talk about that and the uh, realization of the political elevation of those elements really beginning under, uh, well, not beginning, but uh, reaching uh, warp speed, so to speak, under Viktor Yushchenko. necessarily, even though this is going to be a long delineation, I'm going to have to telescope a lot because uh, this uh, falls in a line of inquiry that I have documented extensively, really going back to uh, the early 1980s and the uh, period when I went on the air. But uh, the title again, how many lies before you belong to the lie? Well, this country belongs to the lie, and its people belong to the lie. And I, I, I find myself having to take a good look at young kids because I have to remind myself 
that were one of the really cruel truisms of human civilization, and that is that the sins of the parents are visited upon the children. I see, maybe I saw a family with a, a father with a, uh, I don't know, a little baby, but a very young child who couldn't walk, and a little toddler girl, and, and another little girl only slightly older than the toddler, and the father had the toddler girl by the hand, and, and her older sister took her by the other hand, and I had to look at that to remind myself not to feel as bitter as I find myself inclined to feel. Those kids didn't ask for what's going on, uh, but their parents have remained beautifully ignorant. It's also funny to me, you know, not ha-ha funny, but grotesquely funny, to hear all of the self-righteous uh, and... Uh, the, the piety and, and uh, self-righteous positioning of the commentators. So Putin attacked Ukraine. The United States just attacked the entire world, including its own people, with a biological warfare weapon, SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus. And I've done a massive amount of programming on that, and yet no one is talking about that. So, uh, again, how many lies before you belong to the lie? Well, there is no numerical answer to that question, but there is a final existential answer to that question, and we have gotten there. So, what I'm going to be talking about in this series of programs, all of it reviewed, almost all of it reviewed, is the Nazification of Ukraine, and Putin says he wants to be Nazified. I don't doubt that. It is going to be very difficult to do, and I don't see how he is going to be able to do that without a long-term occupation of at least parts of Ukraine. We'll see. I think that the invasion is likely to make the Nazi elements even more popular as Terrafractal has speculated about in some of his brilliant and incisive comments, but that remains to be seen. Uh, we're going to begin our substantive presentation with an article from Consortium News of December 23rd of 2021. This is by Craig Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, the UK's former ambassador to Uzbekistan. And this, we, we've heard a lot about uh, condemnation at the UN of the Russian military adventure into Ukraine. We didn't hear very much about this in the U.S. press. U.S. and Ukraine at UN refused to condemn Nazism. Again, by Craig Murray, Consortium News, December 23rd of 2021. Very seldom does one see something uh, like this. Normally, you really have to go to a fairly obscure blog to see discussion like this, but uh, an introduction to this article. The Ukrainian vote against the UN resolution against Nazism was motivated by sympathy for the ideology of historic, genocidal, active Nazis. It is as simple as that, writes Craig Murray. Yes, it is. Good for you, Craig Murray. Continuing. This is verbatim from the official report of the U.N. General Assembly plenary of December 16th. Quote, The Assembly took up the report on, quote, Elimination of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance, unquote, containing two draft resolutions. 
quote, by a recorded vote of 130 in favor to two against, the two who voted against it, the Ukraine and the United States, with 49 abstentions, that is the EU, more about that later, the Assembly then adopted draft resolution one, combating glorification of Nazism, neo-Nazism, and other practices that contribute to fueling contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. It goes on, quote, by its terms, the Assembly expressed deep concern about the glorification of the Nazi movement, neo-Nazism, and former members of the Waffen-SS organizations, including by erecting monuments and memorials, holding public demonstrations in the name of the glorification of the Nazi past, the Nazi movement, and neo-Nazism, and declaring or attempting to declare such members and those who fought against the anti-Hitler coalition, collaborated with the Nazi movement and committed war crimes and crimes against humanity, quote, participants in national liberation movements. One more time, because this directly addresses the situation in Ukraine. By its terms, the Assembly expressed deep concern about the glorification of the Nazi movement, neo-Nazism, and former members of the Waffen-SS organization, including by erecting monuments and memorials, holding public demonstrations in the name of the glorification of the Nazi past, the Nazi movement, and neo-Nazism, and declaring or attempting to declare such members and those who fought against the anti-Hitler coalition, collaborated with the Nazi movement, and committed war crimes and crimes against humanity, quote, participants in national liberation movements, unquote. That is exactly what is going on in Ukraine and what has gone on since the Maidan coup. There is a picture I have used in many program descriptions. It is in two posts on the front page of the Spitfire List at Dotcom website. It is a celebration in Lvov, Ukraine, in the summer of 2018 of the 75th anniversary of the founding of the 14th Waffen-SS Division, the Galician Division, uh, the, uh, I guess you could call them uh, SS reenactors, two of them in uh, camouflage combat uniforms and one in an SS officer's uniform, uh, stand in the foreground, and in the background you can see the Ukrainian National Color Guard. That is a picture worth more than a thousand words. Uh, it basically explains exactly what is going on in Ukraine, and it is exactly what this uh, UN referendum uh, was addressing. Again, 49 abstentions, that's the EU, more about that in a minute. Two countries voted against it, the Ukraine and the United States. Uh, and after talking about uh, the naming of a public square in Lithuania uh, for a, f- a fellow who uh, participated in the extent of, um, let's see, what is his name here, Lucesa Demantas, uh, no, uh, Juokos Lucesa Demantas, uh, I'm sure I'm butchering the uh, Lithuanian pronunciation, uh, after talking about the naming of a square in the capital after this, quote, freedom fighter, unquote, uh, the author, David uh, Craig Murray, goes on to say, 
However, the European Union, in support of its Baltic states members and their desire to forget or deny historical truth and to build a new national myth expunging their active role in the genocide of their Jewish and Roma populations, would not support the UN resolution on Nazism. The EU countries abstained, as did the UK. The truth, of course, is that NATO intends to use the descendants of Eastern European racists against Russia, much as Hitler did, at least in a Cold War context. You won't find that in the explanation of vote. That is absolutely correct, and we are going to document just exactly that right now. Now, one of the Nazi groups we have spoken about is Pravi Sector, P-R-A-V-Y, S-E-K-P-O-R, or Right Sector, as it is also known. Uh, it's Reber, uh, Dimitro Yarosh, that's D-Y-M, or B-M-Y-P-R-O. You'll see that transliterated from the Cyrillic alphabet in various ways, is now an advisor to the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. From the 112.international.ukraine blog of November 2nd of 2021, just a few months ago, ex-leader of right sector Yarosh appointed advisor to armed forces commander-in-chief. The commander of the Ukrainian Volunteer Army, ex-leader of the right sector movement Dmitry Yarosh, said that he had been appointed an advisor to the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine. He wrote about this on Facebook. By order of Lieutenant General Valery Zaluzhny, Z-A-L-U-Z-H-N-Y, I was appointed an advisor to the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine. Thank you for your trust. We will win together, Yarosh wrote. And from his Wikipedia entry, Yarosh calls himself a follower of Stefan Bonbera. Stefan Bonbera was the leader of the OUNB, that was uh, the primary Ukrainian Nazi collaborationist element in Ukraine during World War II. And the Pravi sector, as we are about to see, is the political front of the UNA-UNSO, which is the final iteration of the UPA, the uh, Ukrainian Partisan or Ukrainian Volunteer Army. It has very, various uh, names. That was the military wing of the OUNB. From an article from Strategic Culture of June 9th, 2014 by Peter Lee, L-E-E, The Durability of Ukrainian Fascism. Skipping down. Yuri Shukhevich's role in modern Ukrainian fascism is not simply that of an inspirational figurehead and reminder of his father's anti-Soviet heroics for proud Ukrainian nationalists. He is a core figure in the emergence of the key Ukrainian fascist formation, Pravi Sector, and its paramilitary, one more time. Yuri Shukhevich's role in modern Ukrainian fascism is not simply that of an inspirational figurehead and reminder of his father's anti-Soviet heroics for proud Ukrainian nationalists. That should belong in quotes. He is a core figure in the emergence of the key Ukrainian fascist formation, Pravi Sector, and its paramilitary. And Pravi Sector's paramilitary, the UNA-UNSO, is not a, quote, unruly, unquote, collection of weekend warrior wannabes, as Mr. Higgins might believe. That's of the New York Times. 
UNA-UNSO was formed during the turmoil of the early 1990s, largely by ethnic Ukrainian veterans of the Soviet Union's bitter war in Afghanistan. From the first, the UNA-UNSO has shown a pace for foreign adventurers, sending detachments to Moscow in 1990 to oppose the communist coup against Yeltsin and to Lithuania in 1991. With apparently very good reason, the Russians have also accused UNA-UNSO fighters of participating in the anti-Russian side in Georgia and Chechnya. After formal Ukrainian independence, the militia elected Yuri Shukhevich, the son of OUNB commander Roman Shukhevich, more about him in a minute, as its leader and set up a political arm which later became Sector. That is the political arm of the UPA, and its uh, former leader, Dmitry Yarosh, is a top military advisor to the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. And that is not an isolated incident. Uh, what we're going to do for the balance of this program, and uh, certainly well into the next, is to chronicle the evolution of the Ukrainian fascist forces. Uh, we'll, in our next program, or perhaps a third, we're going to talk about uh, what was going on prior to and in the early phases of World War II, including and especially in the U.S., the Ukrainian fascist fifth column. But we're going to take a look at uh, the formation of a unit that did not have a great deal of military significance uh, in occupied Germany or occupied France, although it was active. It did, however, have a fairly significant uh, outgrowth in Ukraine and Poland, uh, parts of the former Soviet Union, the Baltic states. Uh, I went back and began reviewing some sections that uh, we used in AFA program number one all the way back in April of 1984. This from the, one of the early seminal texts on Reinhard Galen, Galen, Style of the Century by E.H. Cookridge, published in hardcover by uh, Random House in 1971. And this was about the formation of the werewolf networks. Uh, those were to be guerrillas who were going to harass the Allies uh, and assassinations and sabotage and so forth. They were going to be joined, uh, they were going to be composed, I should say, of uh, recruits from the Hitler Youth, from the Hitler Mobgen and uh, the League of German uh, Women, and also from uh, various uh, Eastern European groups as well. Uh, I was astounded to see a link to the uh, French fascist networks networking with Otto Skorzeny that we looked at in connection with the assassination of JFK. More about that later. Reading from Galen Spy of the Century by E.H. Cookridge. Galen provided SS Obergruppenführer Hans Kutzmann with a detailed blueprint for the organization of the werewolves. Kutzmann and his sub-commanders resorted to enlisting members of the rapidly dissolving Vlasov Army and the Ukrainian UPA. 
So note, uh, members of the UPA were enlisted in the werewolves. Galen had produced the original scheme for the werewolves. Uh, Galen had basically envisaged the werewolves as a primary utility against the Soviet Union, again quoting from E.H. Cookridge, with his RMET radio network, which he was determined to maintain behind the Soviet lines, these werewolf undertakings could have become extremely useful. Galen obtained from SS Obergruppenführer Putzmann and his staff detailed information about the deployment of their werewolf groups in the East. He was to make some use of this in later years. Again, note this. Putzmann and his sub-commanders resorted to enlisting members of the rapidly dissolving Vlasov Army and the Ukrainian UPA. That's the combatant wing of the OUNB. Galen had produced the original scheme of the werewolves. We're going to talk about the origin of uh, the phrase better dead than red or rather dead than red. Reading now from the book The Borman Brotherhood by William Stevenson, published, republished happily in uh, hardcover by Sky, or uh, softcover by Skyhorse Publishing. It was the symbolism as always that counted. Radio Werewolf hammered the theme rather dead than red, a phrase that lived long after. Bolshevism was the real enemy. The Nazis had always resisted the Bolsheviks, therefore any German who helped the enemies of Nazism was helping the Bolsheviks and was a traitor. A climate was being created that would favor the concealment of wanted men. And again, we went into that in uh, AFA program number one way back in uh, April of 1984. And again, note that the radio werewolf theme, rather dead than red or better dead than red, that's the genesis of that phrase, which became a uh, something of a, uh, a battle cry during the Cold War, was with radio werewolf. And note that some of the early recruits were members of the UPA. We're going to uh, pivot slightly as well. Before going back to the werewolves and the UPA, uh, worth noting, uh, the genesis of the very term Iron Curtain. It is usually attributed to Winston Churchill and a speech that he gave in Springfield, Missouri shortly after World War II. That is not where it came from. Once again, turning to the Borman Brotherhood by William Stevenson. The threat of war between the Western Allies and Russia had been promoted for years by the Nazis. This vision of ultimate conflict with, quote, barbaric Bolshevism, unquote, produced the first reference to an Iron Curtain. It was uttered by Hitler's former finance minister, Count Lutz, Sharon von Krosik, on May 2, 1945, when he was trying desperately to win Allied recognition for the government of Admiral Dönitz, in which von Krosik was briefly foreign minister. Schwerin von Krosik was an unctuous figure who had never forgotten Hess's saying before his departure that the two Germanic nations, Britain and Germany, were fighting each other to the enormous satisfaction of the Bolsheviks. The Count, a former Rhodes scholar who seemed to have learned nothing about the English during his time at Oxford, calculated that Hess had made some impression on his British hosts. The Iron Curtain moves closer, he declared in a broadcast, 
People caught in the mighty hands of the Bolsheviks are being destroyed. The term was picked up from the German broadcast. Churchill used it when he cabled President Harry Truman on May 12th. Quote, An iron curtain is drawn upon their front. We do not know what is going on behind, unquote. He dropped it into a speech in the United States. It demonstrates the infectious nature of the fears deliberately released by Hitler's followers in order to win Western sympathy. Now, before we go back to the guerrilla warfare, which was waged in parts of Ukraine, uh, parts of Poland, and the Baltic states, we need to remember, uh, or at least uh, briefly cite, some of the things that were going on during World War II. Uh, Two of the most important figures for the in, in, in the Nazification of America are two very prominent lawyers from what is arguably the most prominent Wall Street law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. There is John Foster Bellis, who cobbled together the IG Farben uh, chemical cartel, and his brother Alan Bellis, who was instrumental in uh, basically midwifing American capital investment in Nazi Germany. Uh, Alan Bellis also was instrumental in uh, basically committing treason during World War II. One of the things we have spoken about, and I will put a link in the description for this show, in 1943, he met with Prince Max Egan von Hohenlohe, an in-law of the Habsburgs, who was a diplomatic representative for Walter Schellenberg. Walter Schellenberg was in charge of overseas intelligence for the SS, the SS, the SS Intelligence Service, the SD, and uh, was also, by the way, a member of the Board of Directors of International Telephone and Telegraph, the uh, transnational conglomerate, a subsidiary of which the Lorenz Company manufactured the Focke-Wulf aircraft that uh, was one of Germany's top interceptor aircraft during World War II. In the meeting with von Hohenlohe, Alan Bellis observed that, quote, the only reason the U.S. was keeping the war going was to, quote, get rid of the Jews, unquote. And he then proceeded to betray to uh, Prince von Hohenlohe the upcoming plans for the Allies' invasion of Italy and Sicily. Uh, that basically was high treason. He also opined that the next world war would be between the Soviet Union and the U.S., and uh, William Donovan's OSS then continued those negotiations with the Third Reich behind Franklin Roosevelt's back uh, running up to the war. We've also looked at how Alan Bellis, there was a brilliant article by the characteristically brilliant Berkeley scholar Peter Bale Scott in Covert Action Quarterly Number 25. We use this in For the Record 1147, uh, for the record 1148, 1149, and 1150. Uh, I also incorporated uh, that, that article was to become a book. Uh, it was never published because the professional headwinds were too strong. I came into possession of a manuscript, uh, a raw copy of that, and published that myself some 36 years later. The article, again, from the winter of 1986, was called How Alan Bellis and the SS 
preserved each other, and it meant just that. Uh, the, SF, the CIA, I should say, was set up in considerable measure to become a repository for the SS carburetors that had served German intelligence to be used against the former Soviet Union. Uh, William Donovan, like Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, was a powerful Wall Street lawyer. Uh, his Donovan leisure, I've forgotten the other partners in the firm, a very powerful Wall Street law firm. He actually had a meeting, a sympathetic lunch with Adolf Hitler in 1923. Uh, in the period that we are about to look at, uh, the closing days of World War II and the immediate aftermath in which the actual combat of World War II was carried on in parts of the former Soviet Union, Ukraine in particular, uh, until early 1950s. These were guerrilla groups, some of which were formed by Galen for his werewolf program. We noted that members of the UPA were recruited into the werewolf program. And uh, we also uh, are going to take note of... Uh, Another amazing connection. I'm going to, it's sort of a digression from the Ukraine, but uh, not really past the point. Uh, note that the in the closing phase of World War II, the OSS man in charge of OSS operations in Germany, which were at that point making contact with people like SS General Karl Wolf in Italy. They were making contact with people like Friedrich Schwind, Walter Ralph. We looked at that and for the record, 1148, 1149, and 1150. The OSS man in Germany at that time directing OSS operations was William Casey. He later became Ronald Reagan's campaign manager and became Ronald Reagan's director of the CIA. Uh, Alan Bellis, uh, who was uh, basically working with another powerful Wall Street lawyer, Frank Wisner. Uh, Frank Wisner had been a partner with Carter, Redbird, and Milburn, which was the general counsel for the Dow Jones Corporation, which used to own the New York Stock Exchange. At one point, the CIA had two deputy directors of Central Intelligence uh, from Harding, from Carter, Redbird, and Milburn. Uh, one was Harding Jackson, and the other was Frank Wisner, who was also negotiating with the SS behind Roosevelt's back. But eventually, as we have looked at in many programs, the what John, what John Loftus, uh, a former army officer and uh, an investigator, with the Justice Department's Office of Special Investigations, investigating uh, Nazis in the U.S., he came across what was, again, literally a Nazi element of the Republican Party. This was put together by Alan Bellis using his protege, Richard Nixon. It was a Republican Ethnic Heritage Outreach Organization. Uh, the chief spokesperson for the Nixon-Bellis Republican Nazi wing was Ronald Reagan, the fellow who handled the State Department machinations to bring many of these Eastern European Nazis and collaborators, not only members of the UPA, but the Croatian Ustasi, the Romanian Iron Guard, the Hungarian, uh, the uh, Slovakian Linka Party, the Hungarian Arrow Cross, and others, was 
William Casey using the International Rescue Committee. And those Nazis were, although they coalesced in presidential election years, they were seen as being able to deliver the key swing vote in presidential election years. They were made a permanent part of the Republican Party under the auspices of the chairman of the Republican National Committee in 1973. That was the aforementioned George H. W. Bush, for whom CIA headquarters is named. I would note that Nixon's first congressional repos- uh, opponent, uh, which was, uh, well, I'm fusing a synapse here. Anyway, uh, the first guy against whom Nixon ran for Congress, uh, I, I'll have the name in the description, was the fellow who was leading the forefight on, on the floor of Congress to break up the IG, Jerry Voorhees, that was his name, uh, V-O-O-R-H-E-E-S. He was leaving, as we looked at in AFA number two, he was leaving the floor fight to break up IG Farben. And, and, uh, Richard Nixon was his, basically, uh, replaced him as representative. Nixon was solicited to run against Jerry Voorhees by a prominent East Coast businessman, as we looked at in uh, uh, the book uh, Family of Secrets, and uh, the businessman was either uh, John, uh, the aforementioned Alan Bellis, or perhaps Prescott Bush Sr. And in Russell's Family of Secrets, there is a very, very good uh, account of that. So this was what was going on at that time. Uh, William Casey, again, was the OSS agent in Germany at the close of, during the closing phase of the war, while these things were going on. Now bear in mind, uh, that members of the UPA, which uh, ultimately involved into Pravi Sector, its political front, and, uh, the former leader of Pravi Sector, a pop advisor to the chief of the, of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Turning once again to Galen Spy the Century. In southwest Ukraine and eastern Poland, bands of the nationalist UPA, again, that's the military wing of the OUNB, bands of the nationalist UPA, many still with their German SS officers, harassed the Soviet army, the Polish militia of the communist dominated Warsaw government, and the local authorities set up in the liberated territories. At various times between November 1945 and the spring of 1947, these, quote, counter-revolutionary bandits, unquote, were in effective control of many villages and rural districts. Trained in guerrilla warfare by the Germans, they ambushed Soviet road convoys, used hit-and-run tactics, and carried out innumerable sabotage actions. Indeed, some of the Ukrainian insurgents held out in the forests of the Carpathian Mountains until 1952. The Soviet authorities also encountered trouble in the former Baltic states. After four years of Nazi occupation, many German soldiers, particularly of the Kurland Army, which had been cut off during the winter of 1944, had remained there. Together with Latvian and Estonian patriots, they now turned upon the, quote, Red Liberators, unquote. For years, the communists 
kept silent about the extent of the fighting, which in many areas amounted to a minor civil war. At this stage of the game, the UPA was being supported by the OPC. That was sort of a uh, cross between the, uh, basically it was partly State Department, partly CIA. It ultimately morphed into the CIA's Department of Plans. It was run by Frank Wisner, the aforementioned uh, prominent OSS agent and Wall Street lawyer. And uh, basically those guerrillas, including, again, bands of the nationalist UPA, many still with their German SS officers, uh, basically switched uniforms. Now, pivoting back ever so briefly and a bit of a digression, I hadn't looked at Galen's spy of the century for some time, and as I was looking at the Galen genesis of the werewolf guerrillas, again, their battle cry from Radio Werewolf, rather dead than red or better dead than red, as we Americans say it. Uh, Galen put together the werewolves, uh, and uh, SS Obergroup and Fear Pussman recruited from the UPA and also there was something else turning back to Galen's spy of the century. After the liberation of France, thousands of former Vichy militiamen of the traitor Joseph Darnan, members of Doriot's French Waffen-SS, ex-Cagulau of Colonel de Lancla, and a motley mob of French collaborators and quizlings, and a motley mob of French collaborators fled across the Rhine, in an attempt to escape the vengeance of the compatriots they had for four long years oppressed more cruelly than the Gestapo. Many of them were recruited into werewolf units which were to carry out sabotage actions inside France and against the Allied occupation forces in western Germany. But nearly all of these Frenchmen quickly deserted as soon as they received their paltry bounty. Scorzani, who for a brief period in 1943 had been in charge of a, quote, special commando, unquote, guarding Maréchal Patin and Laval, set up a training center for French saboteurs at Friedenthal, whilst Bernard, with SS Hauptsturmführer Dieterbing, busied himself at Sigmaringen with the organization of the White Marquis, unquote, against General de Gaulle. The point of this is that the apparent genesis of the OAS, the Organisation de la Secrète, the French uh, ultras, uh, composed largely of uh, sympathizers of uh, Vichy France, uh, the genesis of the White Marquis against General de Gaulle was with the Third Reich and uh, the networking with Otto Scorzani. We took a look at the role of those French fascists uh, in the JFK assassination uh, in former record program number 1222. So it is fascinating that the apparent genesis of the OAS and the milieu that we saw coalescing in part in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963, goes all the way back to Galen's werewolf guerrillas and Otto Scorzami. That is fascinating. Uh, we're going to access some uh, very important points from an article that comprised uh, 
for the record programs of 1,098, 1,099, 1,000, and 1,001. Uh, we're not going to have time to get to it in uh, all of it or even most of it in this program or almost out of time, but we will begin it and we will continue that in our next program. The article is also from Covert Action Magazine from March 23rd of 2019. Imagined geographies of Central and Eastern Europe, the concept of Intermarium. It is by Marlene Lavoel, L-A-R-U-E-L-L-E, and Ellen Rivera, R-I-V-E-R-A, again from Covert Action Magazine from March 23rd of 2019. Now going back to the reinstitution of the OUNB UPA elements in Ukraine, uh, there is this quote from that article. The continuity of institutional and individual trajectories from Second World War collaborationists to Cold War-era anti-communist organizations to contemporary conservative U.S. think tanks is significant for the ideological underpinnings of today's intramarium revival. And to basically, well, the Nazi elements in Ukraine, uh, I don't know how successful Putin's going to be in the uh, demazifying Ukraine. He's got a lot of work. I can't see how a brief occupation will do that. Uh, I suspect that the goal was to lure Russia into a war in the first place and then to slowly bleed Russia rather like Afghanistan uh, with the ultimate aim of not only overthrowing Putin but perhaps ultimately breaking up Russia and breaking off the oil-rich Caucasus into a neo-Ottoman empire or something like that. But again, this is something of a thesis statement to the articles of information that we will excerpt from that covert action article. The continuity of institutional and individual trajectories from Second World War collaborationists to Cold War-era anti-communist organizations to contemporary conservative U.S. think tanks is significant for the ideological underpinnings of today's intermarium revival. Yes, indeed. And uh, it is that revival uh, that we will be talking about. Again, the, uh, I've heard a few passing references to uh, the Azov Battalion and uh, to uh, Pavisek, where they were shallow and uh, deal with them as though they were peripheral elements. Uh, Azov Battalion, again, basically a Nazi formation within the Ukrainian uh, uh, National Guard. It has also spawned a police regiment, as has uh, Svoboda. Uh, the driving force behind uh, the Azov Battalion is Roman Zvorich. He was the personal secretary in the early 1980s to Yaroslav Stetsko, the wartime head of the Ukrainian collaborationist government that uh, carried out Nazi uh, ethnic cleansing in Ukraine. He then became the Minister of Justice, the equivalent of uh, Attorney General under the Yushchenko government, and both 
Timoshenko governments as well. Uh, noting that Yushchenko, Viktor Yushchenko, married the former Ekaterina Tumachenko. She was a member of the UCCA, that's the top OUNB front organization in the U.S., and became Ronald Reagan's deputy director of public liaison. We will begin to trace this evolution uh, in our next program, but we are all out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1228, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie, Part 1, being recorded on February 25th of 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.